In this episode, you will learn about the different types of housing that is built in the U.S., the scale of the housing crisis in our country, and a contextualization of how that crisis particularly affects Black Americans. So let's talk about types of housing. In real estate terminology, housing is referred to as the residential asset class, which is distinct from office, retail, hospitality, industrial, and institutional asset classes. Residential is broken down into subcategories based on how many people live there, who lives there, and in some cases, how much they earn. Single-family homes are the dominant type of residential in the United States, encompassing 82 million of the 129 million homes in the U.S. today. They are freestanding structures surrounded by front, rear, and side yards. So that's probably familiar to many of our listeners. Townhouses are also one family, but typically they are attached rather than detached. Multifamily housing describes buildings that contain multiple units and are often referred to as apartment buildings. Multifamily buildings can be senior housing, which is age-restricted. Student housing, including college dormitories, typically require enrollment in or affiliation with a university. Affordable or workforce housing is meant for lower-income folks with or without regulations binding who can live there. Single-room occupancy, or SROs, are multifamily buildings with shared bathrooms and kitchens, so effectively you could say dormitories for low-income people. Homeless shelters have shared bathrooms and kitchens, as well as shared sleeping facilities. This doesn't encompass every single type of residential there is, or every variation there can be, but this effectively is the, the universe of residential in the United States today. So I mentioned that there are 129 million housing units in the U.S. Is that enough for a country of 332 million people? The average household size is now 3.1 people, which is down from 3.7 in the 1960s. Using basic math, I did go to MIT, we theoretically have enough units. But when you account for housing undersupply in certain areas and oversupply in others, Units being used for short-term stay, like Airbnb, less than 100% occupancy in the units that do exist, and even people owning multiple homes, and of course, people not being counted by the census, we end up with an undersupply of 3.8 million to 7 million units of housing, depending on who you ask. In a great article for The Atlantic, writer Annie Laurie lays out the numbers, and there's a link to the article in the show notes. How we got here is a complex entanglement of public policy, regulatory oversight, budget priorities, land use decisions, construction codes, and financing with a healthy dose of politics and fear. How we get out of this housing crisis may be even more complex. We will explore this in the current and following seasons of American Building Podcast. In this opening episode of Season 3, I am talking to architect Sean Pichon and developer Omar Karim. Sean is a founding partner at PGN Architects, which was recently acquired by Michael Graves Architecture and Design. The firm's design work focuses on affordable and market-rate residential projects and mixed-use projects, along with renovation and historic preservation. 
He is a board member at Eastern Market Main Street, an economic development-focused nonprofit. He began his career at Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill and is a graduate of Howard University. Omar Karim is the president of Banneker Ventures, a real estate development, construction, and property management company. The firm focuses on residential and institutional projects. Omar is a lawyer who began his career at Kramer 11, Naftalis, and Frankel. And like Sean, he is a graduate of Howard University. Thank you so much for being here with us today. So I want to start off with a really important question in terms of what home means to each of you. And I want to start off with uh, Sean. So home to me is a family. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, South Central LA, uh, surrounded by nothing but family. So food, culture, cousins, tons of cousins and everything that comes from that. So your social network, your structure. So you talk about religious structure, you talk about you know, your schooling, all that is, is kind of wrapped up in where you live and who you're surrounded by in your community. And how about for you, Omar? Uh, what, would you, what do you think of when you hear the word home? So I, I think about kind of safety and security and relaxation, a place where you can be vulnerable and run around and kind of outdoors and indoor spaces and a lot of sleeping. Like uh, my daughter was going through my phone recently and she found all of these photos of me on my phone of me sleep. And, you know, she's nine. And so she must have took my phone every time I was asleep on a couch or a chair <laughs> or somewhere. And she's taking just over the years. And there was all of these photos. And then we found a video of my 14-year-old. She's 15 now. Of a video, actually. While I'm asleep, she's taking a video and she's talking about me, right? That's home. I would call it joy. Like, I'm very happy when I'm home. So both of you are talking about topics of family and being together, which are things that I would consider when I think of uh, home as well. So Omar, as a a real estate developer, you had a, in some cases, in some ways, a unique start, in some ways, maybe not so unique, but I'm interested to hear from you what your path into development was. Yeah, so I I got started uh, because some of my, I was practicing law in New York with a big firm and some buddies were down in DC buying row houses and multifamily houses using a program called NACA, where mm-hmm. they help kind of a lot of times first time home buyers and, and folks in com- underserved communities purchase their homes through a no money down program. And I was thinking to myself as I was paying all this rent in New York, man, I probably could do that. And so unbeknownst to me how difficult it was in New York, I started walking down the streets and looking for homes to buy. This is in the kind of the 2000, 2001, mm-hmm. even three. And I landed up and bought a home at 123rd and Lenox Avenue and we renovated it and wound up having a, a four unit building. And 90 days later, after we closed on the first one, we purchased another one in, in Bedside, Brooklyn. And then from there, I had an opportunity to work for a uh, black woman developer in DC. And I came down and she gave me a shot to do large scale 
real estate development projects and help her run those projects. Incredibly grateful for that opportunity. And then after working a number of years there, we left and we started Banneker about 18 years ago. So the uh, NACA program that Omar mentioned is the Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America, so a home buying program that's 0% down. And I understand the, the, the person that was your mentor initially uh, said no to you uh, working with her. Could you talk about uh, what that process was like? Yeah, so I, I didn't even know developers existed, quite frankly. And I read about this woman in uh, Essence Magazine, and her name was Pamela Bundy, and she ran a successful small boutique development company in D.C. And I, I said, man, I really want to go learn from her and, and go work for her. And so I wrote down a list of all of these things on a sheet of paper of how I could be helpful. I could be your general counsel. I've been a lawyer and I could run your deals. And, you know, I've done these renovation projects. I could work on zoning, all of these things. And she said, well, let me think about it. I'll call you back. And she called me back. It would appear like the same day. She said, I thought about it and answered no. Oh, and by the way, I offered to work for her for free. And she told me no. And I was like, wow, that's uh, interesting. So I moved down <laughs> to D.C. nevertheless. And I'm not going to say I stalked her in a non-Me Too type thing, but I, I saw her at a couple of events. And I was like, hey, what about, you know, the guy that offered you, you know, an opportunity to come work for you for free? And then one day, randomly, she called me and she said, where are you? And I was finishing up a deal in New York and I came down, met with her, and she offered me the opportunity and paid me $400 a week, right? So I was used to making not quite 4000 a week in New York, but close to it. And mm -hmm. uh, I was so grateful for that opportunity. I would have, if she would have said, hey, pay me $400 to work for it, I would have done that, figured out a way to do it. And it was just an amazing opportunity for exposure. I think in our industry, to get an opportunity to get exposure, to be trained, and to have an opportunity to work on very large, complex projects, it's a game changer. So, Sean, I want to understand from the, the projects that you guys, uh, both Sean and Omar, you're doing together, give me the lay of the land in terms of the types of projects that you're working on together and some of the details of them. So, between Banneker and uh, PGN and Michael Graves, uh, we've been working on a couple of opportunities of recent. The 2220 MLK project is a project that's done with a church entity where we're looking to add some affordable housing to the uh, church, revamp their existing conditions and build new housing above. Uh, we have to go through a historic process for that. That's been a very challenging process the neighborhood that it's in, Historic Anacostia, uh, there's been some pushback on development of certain scale, and there's been a lot of uh, community outreach and outrage of late about development, particularly around some of the community assets, the, the Black churches that have been in these communities for years, and their ability to you know expand on their assets and you know continue to survive in a community that they've been supporting for decades so we've been battling i know omar and i have had some some late night meetings in that community and some some pretty heated discussions with with several people where you know it's been about the focus of providing quality housing to communities in need 
And that is really at the heart of what we do. We do a lot of affordable housing projects, a couple of projects that I'm helping, assisting Omar on. It's, he has in construction, one's a senior housing project, and the other is an affordable housing project or large-scale projects, podium stick, in terms of the types of construction that we refer to, where if there's one level of concrete and then the remainder of the levels are, are wood construction, it's a unique construction type. Not everyone's familiar with it, which is why I was brought in by Omar to help sort of bridge some of those gaps. Because we've done, over our years, uh, since 2004, we've probably done a tremendous amount of affordable housing projects in that same uh, podium stick construction type. So we're assisting on a couple of projects with them. They're helping them through the construction phase. And then we're also looking towards the future, some larger projects, some larger scale projects that are on the horizon, uh, 180 unit project over on Alabama Avenue and another one in uh, Prince George's County, which which is uh, on the horizon as well. So we're looking forward to doing great things in the future, building off the success that we've already had. And the, the projects that you mentioned, that's uh, 2220 MLK Avenue, the Clara at Sierra Plaza Senior Housing, the Rollark and the Pavilion. So I want to dive into one of the questions that you mentioned, or one of the things that you mentioned in your response was about the the outreach that is being done for uh, particularly the first project, 2220 MLK Avenue, and then some of the, the community response back. And you specifically said outrage. So Sales and acquisitions of church property have been uh, particularly uh, active, as the Commercial Observer did a great article about that, focusing on black churches across the Southeast in terms of those properties converting to a residential. And I want to kind of get a little bit more of an understanding of what uh, was particularly happening in this instance that that caused the community to respond the way it did. Well, for, for that project in particular, there's been a faction of the existing community that has been uh, pushing back on the amount of affordable housing in the area and and the size and scale of development. The existing fabric of the historic Anacostia is a two, three-story kind of you know, row house type developments that have been used for commercial uses over the years. It's a commercial strip. It's zoned for much higher density. And then it, the neighborhood kind of rises up behind it on hillsides. And they have beautiful views of the monuments and the, the architecture of, of D.C. Uh, and those views are, are astounding. Mm-hmm. You get up behind these, the commercial strip. Well, there's, there's a faction of the community that believes that some of these developments are going to hinder their ability to, you know, have this quaint neighborhood feel and reduce their their view access to the watershed and the, the monuments and the things of that nature. But what they don't really understand is like, you know, there's topography there that changes that allows for the views to exist. No matter if we build a four or five story building, they're still able to see over top of those buildings from their vantage points. And with that, the ability to support the types of retail 
the types of services that the community desperately needs, you have to have a certain amount of density to support those facilities, those uses. And there's just a, a lack of understanding of, of how the economic system works, where people want certain things, but they don't want the things that help those things come into existence. So it's a, it's a battle of explaining and, and educating people in the community. And at, at the end of the day, most people do come around to understand, but there are some forces out there that that use that, I guess, pivot point or flashpoint as a as a source of power and, and uh, ability to command and, and do things that are not necessarily in the community's best interest. And so you end up fighting against some of those types of voices that have gained momentum over time and have a loud voice, might not be the best voice, <laughs> might not have the, the right intention or the understanding that's that's necessary, but they're loud. They, they've gained a, a platform. And that's sort of the what we've run into. And we've been battling that for quite some time. My first time running into the same group, we had a project just a block away from the MLK site that we had to take all the way to the mayor's agent because the community was so far pitted against the development. And eventually we got it done, but it was a lot of hard work and effort that is probably unnecessary. So amongst the many challenges that a development team uh, has, one is uh, communicating and interacting with the community, as you described, and another really large one is uh, funding. So Omar, I'm really interested in what your experience has been on raising capital, particularly debt, for your multifamily properties, and perhaps using this one as an example, uh, 2220 MLK Boulevard. Sure. So uh, raising capital is always an interesting question. I think over the last couple of years, raising capital has kind of gone from very, you know, or difficult to a lot easier to now with rates uh, kind of doubling in the last 12 months to a, a little more challenging. All of the projects that we're working on have really complex capital stacks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our Martin Luther King deal is a affordable housing, low-income housing, tax credit, equity finance deal. So, you know, has tax credits and bonds and, you know, grants and other things like that to make the deal pencil. And we have another project at 2323 Martin Luther King, about a block away, another similar, you know, complex tax credit equity, bonds, you know, construction financing, grants, and other things like that. You know, we, we talked about our Largo deal or um, a couple of minutes ago that, that PGN is, is working on, and we're super excited about that. We were going on a walkthrough yesterday, and so with a major regional bank about getting a $160 million loan for two of the buildings. So we're super excited that they're super excited to uh, walk with us through that through that structure, it's a $340 million total development cost project. And that has, you know, traditional uh, construction financing to permanent financing, traditional equity. We have money from the state. The, the governor just put in some money on the state in the state budget on Monday, which we're excited about. There's a pilot as well that's, you know, pay in lieu of taxes. Um, that's going in um, to help cover some of the infrastructure costs. So a major economic development project in the county 
and a lot of various different resources. So the uh, low-income housing tax credit program that you mentioned uh, is a major program that distributes about $12 billion a year. And I think it uh, results in about 80% of the affordable housing in the United States uh, is somehow tied to the LIHTC program. I'm really curious about what the experience is like on the ground with a lender, because so Colette uh, Coleman wrote for the New York Times uh, recently about the racial disparity uh, in developers across the country, where approximately uh, 5%, I believe the exact number, the, the article will be in the show notes, but about 5% of developers uh, that were uh, part of this research were not white males, which means that that's everybody else, including uh, myself and Omar. So talk to me about when you are interacting with lenders, what some of those experiences are like on the ground. Yeah, well, that's a good question. The, the folks who did the walkthrough with us yesterday of uh, the site said that 99% of their developer borrowers are white men. So it's even more stark than the number I had. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, and just brought it up, right? Like, it, it didn't seem like anything necessarily was wrong with that. And, uh, it, but we didn't have any white men on the walkthrough from the bank either. So it is, um, you know, I would say people of color don't have the opportunity to get into real estate development or large scale, you know, projects. And therefore, you know, where a lot of money is oftentimes created over generations. And, you know, the lending community, um, fortunately, over the last couple of years has been, you know, community development, financial institutions and other nonprofits that have benefited, you know, through the largesse of other large institutions. As a result, they've been lending some of those funds to black BIPOC, as they call them these days, um, developers. And that's helped pretty significantly. There's a lot of CDFIs who have 50 million, 100 million, several hundred million dollars to, to help do that, where traditional banks wouldn't otherwise lend us money. So, Sean, I want to get an understanding from your perspective of the projects that we've been talking about, how they stack up against your definition and your metrics of impact on the projects you're working on. I think as far as impact goes, uh, there is a huge social impact to a lot of the projects that we work on. And for good reason, like we're talking about with the 20 to 20 MLK, uh, that's taking a, a historic resource, community resource, and giving it a new foundation for future community use. We, we look at that as a, as a huge uh, impact for not only benefiting the, the community that it exists in, but it's, a, it's also a an economic driver for for uh, future families to be able to set a foundation on. Um, having quality home uh, environments and safe neighborhoods is, is a huge step in the right direction for a lot of our families who suffer from the lack thereof. So any project that we're doing that's promoting you know, safe, quality housing that's affordable to people of of all means is is a benefit to not just the community that they're in but the communities at large because the more we have people in safe housing the less 
people are anxious, the less people are feeling left out, the less people are, the more people want to be a productive part of society. They want to be a part of the society that they're in. Uh, so housing is key component of that. And we're doing a lot along those paths to uh, create that for our community. Similarly, Omar, how do you define impact and how do you measure it for yourself on your projects? So I, I think at Banneker, I was just talking to one of our staff, like, and I, I would echo what Sean was saying. I mean, really, we live in these communities. We work in these communities, right? We in you know around these communities all day long so mm -hmm. it's not a it's not a new thing that we've been doing it, it's it's who we are right from who we hire right people on our staff look like the folks in these communities number one our subcontractors are from these communities number two they might have uh, and we've been investing in them for years and years and years we're an 18 year old company and we've invested in folks over the years and i'm happy to to know that people who are doing small home renovations are now doing large scale you know multi-family mixed-use projects right they have crews and they have trucks and they got storage and lines of credits right and all of these uh, amazing things but it took a lot of work on our, our part to to do that and to to invest in them and that but that's just that's who we are we give out uh, student scholarships to go to college unfortunately we pay for burials we train people we we gave out about thirty thousand dollars worth of bikes last year last year the year before to help people get out after COVID or, you know, when the city was trying to get people outdoors. We sent a young lady to the Olympics, right? In 2016, and she she got a silver in fencing. She's the first hijabi to ever compete in the Olympics. And oh, that's uh, Ibtahaj Muhammad. She's yes, from New Jersey. Right. Yes, I was her sponsor and just met her randomly one day and talked about what her goals and what her sister's goals were and what they were doing. And it wasn't a, a huge lift for us. And I mentioned that to if you had to a couple of months ago, and she said, Omar, but it was everything to us, right? It was everything because they didn't have the, the, the financial resources to travel around the world and get the points that's needed to, to make the Olympic team. And so those are the things that, that we do. And, you know, working with Sean and, you know, his firm and to be able to do that. And as a sponsor and a developer, I could pick whoever I want and, you know, now we're working on four deals together, which is absolutely amazing. Howard grads working on, you know, our, our buildings were right next to one another. The architect and engineering school are right next door on 6th Street on Howard's campus. And for years later, for us to be working on hundreds of millions of dollars in deals, is, that's real impact. So then Sean can hire people and, you know, do all of the amazing things that, that PGN does. One last anecdote, there was uh, a young man here who came out and I interviewed uh, him for a job and, you know, I asked him what he had done and he said he had, um, he had robbed a McDonald's and I asked him, well, how much did you get? And he said, nothing. He got caught and he's been with us 10 years, right? He's making, you know, he's about to be making over $100,000 a year and is doing an amazing job as a superintendent 
for our organization. And I love him. That's and he has twins, and then he's able to take care of his his boys and his family. That's impact. And you know, I, I just reached with one of our project managers, and he was telling me how much he's grown with the projects. And so, you you have multiple people working together and impacting one another. So. So what you're describing is the exact opposite of what most people think of when they think of a real estate developer. And I think that stories like yours are absolutely worth uh, telling. They actually remind me, uh, what you described reminds me of a developer in Detroit named Matt Temkin. And for him, a lot of what his, the way that he measures uh, his impact is on the things beyond the construction site. So the relationships that he builds and the bonds that he helps uh, to develop in order to uh, develop and establish a strong community. So I want to talk about the availability or the lack of availability uh, of housing. So uh, I'm based in New York State and uh, Governor Kathy Hochul announced uh, her uh, goal for uh, building 800,000 units of housing across the state. Uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams had a similar goal of 500,000 units in the greater New York City area. And both of you are located in D.C. and the mayor of your city has announced her goal of getting 36,000 units of housing built in the district by 2025. So D.C. is a very densely populated city and also high growth in terms of uh, Maryland and Virginia uh, areas surrounding uh, the city. So I want to get anecdotally from you. How do you guys think of and uh, conceptualize the the lack of supply of housing and that, how that's impacting uh, communities in D.C. and around the area. Uh, I'll start off with uh, Omar on this one. So I, I, I would say, I think uh, Muriel Bowser, uh, our mayor in the district, has been doing an amazing job. She set an ambitious goal a couple of years ago and put a lot of resources in that. And it's just been moving the train down you know, the track very quickly. And uh, as a result, she's been able to produce a lot of um, housing in our city, which is desperately you know needed unlike san francisco and other other places around the country you don't have you know homeless encampments it's all across the city as you do in some of these other you know tough environments and you, you need a really public private partnership you need a, a lot of public money mm-hmm. to go in to solve our housing needs and you need regulations reduce it so that you can get things done quicker, right? Safely, but faster. So, you know, we have a permit process in the district that you can expedite and get permits just in a couple of months. That's unheard of in many areas. I think we need that process in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey. So if you can send it over to us. <laughs> it, well, I, I'll let the mayor know uh, that you should call the mayor of Hoboken. But, you know, I, I would just kind of um, and you need good leadership at agencies. So people who, who share uh, all the way around from the planning board to, you know, historic preservation folks to permitting folks and who really partner with the development community. And, and in the district, I would say development community is no longer a boogeyman and bad part and parcel because there's more folks who look like Sean and I and you who are working on those projects. And I think the uh, what you're speaking of is this really complex soup of issues that has led us to where we are in terms of a lack of housing, which is estimated to be somewhere between three and a half and seven million units so, uh, in terms of undersupply across the country. And that's everything like the things that you mentioned, local entitlements, federal legislation, access to capital to develop projects, design and construction, code issues, and then, of course, everyone's favorite uh, fear and politics. 
I think all uh, play into those. So I want to dive into something that I've learned recently and was really fascinating on is um, statistics of black homeownership in the country. And this question will be for you, Sean. In terms of some of the, the statistics that I've seen in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and say, for example, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or some of these numbers are really stark in terms of access to resources to purchase homes. So Number one I learned is that a black men are paid uh, 70 cents on the dollar uh, relative to white men and black women are paid 82 cents on the dollar relative to white women. And in particular, the net worth of the average black family was $24,000 in 2019 when it was last measured in comparison, the typical white family, which is 8x of that at 190000 Now, taking those statistics and bringing them to the, the case of access to housing, the home ownership gap by race is also really stark uh, in that the home ownership rate for white Americans uh, last year was 73%, uh, and for black Americans, it was 44%. When you hear statistics like these uh, in the context of you as a real estate professional, what are some of the, the things in terms of anecdotes or um, experience that you have that that might be uh, you might offer as color to some of these numbers that, that I just mentioned? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> As, as Omar said, as he was walking around with the bankers and the 99% white, <laughs> the, the one thing that when I when I graduated from Howard, I was, you know, Howard taught me everything. I was this young, altruistic, uh, wanting to save the world kind of guy. <laughs> and I had this crazy idea when I first started off to start this nonprofit group that would go into neighborhoods and basically beautify them. So as as I learned through the process, you know, gentrification is a the, the G word that no one wants to talk about, but really gentrification happens to non-homeowners. So if you don't own, you can get pushed out of your neighborhood. If you own, you are making a decision to sell. And I think the, the articles that you sent over the, the Atlanta Journal uh, talked about the predatory, I guess, focus, hyper-focus on the Black communities of the homeowners, the ones that we actually have managed to become homeowners, then their assets are then targeted through the years. So my concept was around, if you're going to sell, let's sell for the most money. So you go into a community and you beautify the whole community because when you're, when you're predatorily buying, you're buying assets at a lower than market value rate. And the way you do that is uh, you go into in, in neighborhoods that don't look as good as other neighborhoods that don't have the street curb appeal. So this whole concept was around like, how do we help our community get the maximum dollars for what what they eventually are selling, and you know there's just this natural progression of you know, real estate changing hands over time. Anyway, I was told a very long time ago that was a crazy idea. What are you talking about? <laughs> who's gonna who's gonna just give away money to to people to to plant plants and paint houses and and repair, do minor repairs and stuff like that. Sounds like you should uh, call up a Bloomberg Philanthropies. They might actually be uh, up they for that. They might be into that. <laughs> See, now, but that just goes to show you where my mind was even coming out of school. 
And since then, I've, I've uh, learned more about the real estate industry and what my role as an architect is within that. And then I quickly learned the flip side of that. Mm-hmm. I was told in Howard at Howard by one of my professors that and maybe first or second year there said, I hope you understand what you're getting into architecture is a white, an old white man's hobby. <laughs> this is what you're going to focus your whole livelihood on. You, you have to architecture is an old white man's hobby. That's it right there. <laughs> because you agree, you agree, Omar? Yeah, we got to get t-shirts. That say that, right? <laughs> and I didn't really understand yeah. it until I actually got out into the profession and started practicing what that really means. And to have be on a on a podcast like this, to have a person of color sitting next to me as as a client of mine is a huge thing because that was what he was talking about. We don't have the financial wherewithal to be able to afford someone who wants to understand what their their architecture and their lifestyle could be like. They just want quality housing. They just, you know, it, it's not a, it's it's more commodity than it is a designer preference. So what that meant to me was, how do you build communities? Because it, in order for me to have a career, I needed to be able to create wealth within my community so my own community could hire me. So my focus was on helping developers understand how to maximize land, how to really capitalize on untapped value. So that became my focus and and my ability to offer um, value to the processes, understanding the planning side, understanding the financial side as much as I could, but trying to put all those pieces together so that I could I could talk with potential developers on how to look at a piece of property and see its true intrinsic value. And uh, I think that's where we found our niche and where we succeeded over the years is that we've, um, we have a huge success rate in getting uh, projects approved through some of the toughest scenarios and, and one of the toughest environments in the country. <laughs> DC is ranked up there with, <laughs> with with the toughest cities in terms of of, of you know approval processes, uh, and we've we've conquered them all in our in our years, and we see that as as part of you know you were talking about before the how do you measure success, but our success mm-hmm. has been helping developers build and grow. We've we've watched developers go from you know just starting to being huge development companies. And, and along the way, we've been able to help tutor them on the values that we have and helping them understand how to understand that and really see that from just looking at a piece of land on a piece of paper and being able to understand what the, where, the, where the real value is in that. So I, I think that for us, you know, 
home ownership to bring it all back. Home ownership is a huge key for um, increasing wealth, generational wealth. And uh, we, we lack it, uh, the numbers don't lie. So the more we can do to educate our communities to help them understand and, and invest in themselves. Because another quick antidote, and I've been rambling for a little while here, but another little quick antidote is I went back to, I graduated Howard in 95. I bought my first property in 98. And I, I didn't really think that through as the impact that that had, but that's to be huge. three years out of school and purchasing a, a home in the District of Columbia, well, ultimately that led to my success because now I have an asset that's did nothing but gain value over the years. And I joke with my neighbors now, I said, I can't even afford to live in my own neighborhood. <laughs> but I just bought at the right time. So it, it's a it's a thing that if if I had the ability to educate myself back then, I would have been talking to more than just me, my parents, people that had some ability to had some extra wealth around that they could have purchased back then. And the, the difference it would have made them, it just in my personal family, it, it would have been a huge change in, in our trajectory as a, as a group. So I like to say, you know, there, people need to be educated and they need to invest in themselves and, and our home ownership rates will go up. So I want to add uh, one thing for our listeners is uh, Sean brought up the point of uh, predatory buyers. So those are institutional investors that he's referring to that have been very large players in the single family home buyer market since the pandemic buying boom. And in particular, the, the research that he was mentioning in the Atlantic Journal Constitution had uncovered that Wall Street landlords are more than twice as likely to buy homes in African-American neighborhoods than in majority white communities. And in some majority-minority cities like Phoenix, over a quarter of the home purchases were done by institutional investors, not typical owner-occupant type buyers. So I think we, we've talked quite a bit about the statistics, about the anecdotes, and about the impact of what homeownership has. And I'm curious from your perspective, uh, Sean, in terms of the rates of Black homeownership to change and the initiatives that are necessary to change it, what are some of the things that you believe uh, should be a part of a plan going forward for, so for example, D.C. or the greater D.C. area? It's a great question. I think the mayor has done a great job uh, setting forth a task force uh, recently the Black Homeownership Strike Force, they, they brought together some of the top minds in terms of people that have been working with the underserved communities on what it means to be a homeowner, how to get there. So those programs are, are critical, talking about uh, earlier about investing in yourself. Uh, so I think these programs, like what the, the district is doing, nonprofits like MANA, that have a home ownership training. They take people through the process of just starting with, you know, your <laughs> setting, you know, monthly limits and 
and, and finances and how do you start that process of getting your credit to a point where you can purchase. So they take you through that process and get you to the ability to be a homeowner and then get you into a home and then help you maintain that over time. So I think programs like that are critical. That's an educational value to our community. There's also um, the Douglas uh, Community Land Trust, which is a new concept that they actually pull money together and they buy properties or have home ownership that allows people to purchase homes at an affordable rate, but still gain equity through that process. And so their role is to come in as a the uh, the in-between to create that ability for the equity to be transferred to the homeowner that sells, but then allows the new homeowner to still purchase at an affordable rate, if that makes sense, how that, that works. I don't understand all the details of it, but it, it's the concept of it is phenomenal because one of the issues we found in D.C. is the um, affordable housing, the mandatory IZ requirements. It works in a rental market and it has worked in the rental market for years. When we were, there's not as much for sale stuff going on now, but when we were doing a lot of for sale housing uh, developments, condos and things of that nature, the IZ component of it was very difficult because you have to go through a process to get pre-qualified by you know the, the city agency and then those units are then held in sort of like a bucket <laughs> until those homeowners are available and identified but then they're also limited in terms of what they can sell for so you you get the ability to purchase a home as a homeowner but you don't get the the positive side of a equity grow on the back side because you're still limited in how much you can sell it for later to maintain that affordability so that is kind of i think where the uh the land trust community the douglas community land trust comes into play it's like they figured out that matrix where it wasn't working from an iz perspective and they're coming in to help facilitate that that process so i i would hope for a lot more of those types of things to uh, exist because that is the true value of home ownership. I mean, you want you want people to have starter homes. You want people to have you know graduate as their family grows into larger homes. You want you want people to be able to walk that trend of home ownership. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is one, they have to be affordable. Two, you have to be able to get equity out of it because that's the only way to grow to the next step. And and three, people have to be educated in and what it means to be a homeowner. So I think that that's a, that's a great collection of recommendations. And to, to highlight those, that's uh, financial education, legal aid, direct assistance, and housing production investment, and really great projects like the ones that you and Omar are working on. So thank you so much for joining us today, Sean and Omar, and I'm really looking forward to continuing the conversation uh, the rest of the season.